Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have a gentleman with me here, Bob Cousins, whom I've run into over a number of years here at a security conference that, uh, well, for certain reasons, we're going to leave as an undisclosed location. But nonetheless, Bob's a fascinating fellow. He's got a tremendous amount of experience, and I thought you'd benefit from spending some time in a conversation, just listening what Bob has to say. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me uh, this opportunity. As I like to allow people to do, tell us a little bit about yourself and let our audience know why they should be listening in, because I think you're going to hear some really interesting ideas. I've been working in and around startups and as a consultant for about 40 years. I've helped to develop a lot of technologies in and around the security space, in and around storage and networking. And I've seen a lot of problems and operational issues. And I've developed a number of technologies, some of which I've been able to patent that play in the security space. Though I'm not the normal person that you would go to as a security expert. So you mentioned about working with startups, and that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I've been in small business for most of my career when I wasn't in the military. And yet it's, it's a tough challenge because, as we say, if 90% of startups fail and you're going to do a startup, you either have to recognize that you believe that you're going to be the one in 10 that doesn't, which means you're probably self-delusional, which ought to disqualify you from starting your startup. And yet we do it anyway. And it's a little bit like perhaps lottery tickets. Someone will win the lottery, but odds are it's not going to be you. And yet this should be better than a lottery ticket. But for those who are saying, hey, I'd like to strike out on my own, or I've got this really great idea and I can't get traction with it at work. And I'm wondering, can I bring this to market on my own? What sort of words of advice would you offer? What process should they go through? And, and how do they debug their own thinking to find out whether they are, in fact, delusional or this represents, in fact, a viable market idea? Wow. The short version is that starting up a company is not a rational act. Matter of fact, around my world, we refer to it as committing startup because it's, it's, it's kind of like a sin. The other thing that you have to realize is that, yes, you're likely to fail. So you have to make some specific plans from the beginning, such as not signing personal guarantees, not putting yourself in an economical position such that you end up bankrupting yourself, not to take money from your in-laws because when you fail and you can't pay them back, you then have to deal with them for the rest of your life. You, you need to pay attention to this, uh, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Now, the other thing that you have to do when you're doing a startup is you have to realize that the startup that makes the most mistakes fails and the startup that makes the fewest mistakes tends to win. But the truth of the matter is most startups are in the middle. I know companies that have succeeded that have made more mistakes than companies that have failed. So it's a tweener. The final thing is the way you make it most likely to succeed is you do your homework. And that starts with a solid business plan with solid marketing and financials and a technology. Most technical people believe that if they make a product, they can just slap it on the internet and it will sell. Not realizing that that's simply not the way products are purchased or used. As a result, it is very easy to have someone come to you with a wonderful plan 
and I've had this happen dozens of times. People bring me a plan and it's all about how they're going to spend the money on R&D and none about manufacturing it or selling it or supporting it or marketing it or anything else. And I say, well, what is going to happen with those things? And they say, we'll get a website and everyone will beat a path to our door. And I say, well, if GM could sell cars on a website, they would make 40% more money than they make today because that's about what they spend on sales and marketing. And they look at you funny and they go, well, they need to do better than that. I go, no, but if you, you're telling me you can do better than GM or these other big companies with thousands of people, that's not going to work. There's a wonderful book I recommend everyone to read, which is Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. It came out in the 90s and it is a wonderful book because it talks about what types of high-tech startups can do and how the marketing works. And I ultimately developed my own variant of his, his approach that I've been successful at using for the last 20 years. But to make a long story short, startups are high risk, can be high reward, but you have to be prepared for the worst. In a way, what we're trying to do is caution people who are casually thinking about, hey, this looks easy. How about next weekend we start a business? This is a commitment. And I remember when I started my first business, it was a three-year pipeline of thought process of preparation before finally you know, quitting my job and saying, here I am, let's go. And the world doesn't beat a path to your door. And I think in my first three months, I made a total of $300 and I figured, wow, well, like, this is not gonna scale well. And then in two weeks, I made $12,000 and I thought, this is pretty good. Now, I don't get that run rate on a regular basis. And this was many years ago, but what it did teach me is that you find what your median is gonna be and you take that very erratic sign curve of revenue, at least in the early days, and you set what you think is gonna be the mean and then you put your burn rate below that if you can. And if you're able to do that, you can survive and be able to get going. And a lot of people wonder, well, if I go to VC, we call it a nickname them vulture capitalists because, well, they want a lot of your business. Well, the reason they want a lot of your business is because they're taking on the risk. If you've got a 90% failure odds, they're going to have to statistically invest in 10 companies to get one winner. And that one winner has got to pay for all the other nine that failed, plus make enough return on investment to make it worthwhile. So if you go to the VCs and say, but wait, I'm that one in 10 that'll make money. You don't need to extract so much equity. They're like, everybody believes that. But when you're on the other side of the table as you are, you kind of see these, uh, these little kids coming and sitting on Santa's lap saying, what do you want for Christmas, little boy? I said, well, I want a million dollars in a seed round. And then I want an A, Series A. And I'm looking forward to a mezzanine round and things like that. <laughs> And like, but how is this actually going to play out? And the question would be, is that in addition to, well, having the flexibility of having that money and not putting your home at risk, it does give you some other benefits with VC. So let's talk a little bit about why would you turn to that in the, in the first place? And then what would you look to get out of a particular VC, assuming that you had your choice of more than one, which it should be the case, but isn't always the case. Well, dealing with, with venture capital is a, its own special form of risk, and it takes its own special set of rules. 
the first thing that you have to realize is that a VC is going to invest in your company and will be an active component of your planning going forward for five to seven years, which is about the average length of a marriage in the country today. So the first thing I tell people is select the VCs that you go to see carefully. First of all, most VCs can only make investments at certain times in their funds. And the amount of money that they have to invest is a function of the number of partners, the number of other investments that they have, and the amount of the fund. If you're a company that have a company plan that will need $5 million total, then you can't go to a billion dollar fund because they're going to need to put 40 or $50 million into a company. So they will turn you down no matter how good of an investment you are because they cannot make that small of a long-term investment. Even though the initial investment they might put in would be a million dollars, they would be penciling in, putting in more money down the road. The second thing that you have to pay attention to is the areas where the, the VC funds invest. You want uh, funds that will invest in the area that you are in, but not have a direct competitor to you. That is an important thing. The third thing that you have to pay attention to is the partner that you would be speaking to and their background. If the partner does not know about the technologies in the area that you're in, that's a difficulty. Finally, if you don't feel comfortable with the people, you should walk away. Matter of fact, VCs are not used to people telling them no, but I have been in more than one meeting where I've just gently said, gentlemen, I don't think this is going to be a good match. I don't want to take up any more of your time and excuse myself politely because it was quite clear that they were not going to be a match to me and that I didn't want to have to deal with them across a board in five years. There are many things that venture capitalists will promise you. One is money. Another one is future money, and another one is ways that will make your company successful. I have seen VCs write many checks. I have seen them promise many checks, but I will tell you I've also seen many venture capitalists refuse to fund growth, which is one thing they will always tell you they will do, and then periodically they will not do because of various reasons. The third thing is I have never seen a business that grew as a result of the actions of a venture capitalist in, in using the Rolodex or helping to create businesses for you. I have seen them promise that on many occasions, but when push comes to shove, I've never seen it actually happen. I have, on the other hand, seen venture capitalists take perfectly good companies and destroy them. So you need to be very careful. You're bringing in a very dangerous person into the fold. Or it was as it was once explained to me, negotiating with a venture capitalist is like a sheep and a wolf discussing lunch. Remember that you're playing in their backyard. You're going to them with your hat in your hand, and they have hundreds upon hundreds of choices coming in over the over the transom, and they can choose between them. They also are receiving business plans that are similar to the ones that you have. And they may ask you questions just simply to improve their ability to invest in another company. You never know because you don't have a responsibility from them 
to, to keep everything secret and they will not sign non-disclosure agreements. And they can take your technology or take your in insights and run with them. I have seen situations where venture capitalists would offer you the business plan of your competitor so that you could read it over and tell you, tell them how you were different. Obviously I did not accept that, but these are the types of things that can happen. I will say that if mother Teresa were reborn and made into a venture capitalist, she would find it ethically challenging for her momentarily about three minutes into the industry. It's a tough job and put yourself in the VC's place. It's very hard to play straight and some do and some don't. Silicon Valley is filled with stories and lawsuits of venture capitalists who have not played straight. And I was reflecting on when I was up on Sand Hill Road a number of years ago talking to the VC and the exact thing in question, hey, here's an NDA. And I'm looking at the NDA and it's like, this is a one-sided NDA. I always sign mutual NDAs. In fact, my mutual NDA form that I use, I say sign either side because like you do with the kids, you cut the cake and then the other kid gets to pick which piece. There's an incentive to split it. And it was explained to me, they said, look, we don't do NDAs. And there's a re business reason for it. It's not because we're evil. It's not the intention. We probably wouldn't get this far. It's we see hundreds and hundreds of these plans a month. And there's no way we could keep sort in our minds that this little nuanced idea that was in yours also happened to be in somebody else's. And we don't want to be tied up in litigation claiming, hey, you invested in company Y when the feature of product was in our company X description. And so they say, no, it's, uh, it's a bit of a deal with the devil in a way in that you're saying, yeah, we'll fund you, but you're not going to have those typical protections that you might have. But the other interesting thing I thought was you had mentioned was regard to the contacts. So we talk about, for example, at the friends and family round, when you first start out and you go to Uncle Charlie because he's rich and he doesn't have any kids or your dentist. And those people may potentially put money in, but they're not, it's not smart money. These are people where your dentist is going to be able to refer you to five potential clients, unless, of course, you're in the dental appliance business. But rather, the idea that I had talked to VCs is they said, well, we can introduce you to potential customers or in the security business. And this was sort of my pitch. I could help you as a VC secure your other portfolio companies. If they used our technology, you're going to have a lower risk of something going wrong there. And therefore, it's actually a mutual exchange of value. But it never seems to be seen that way on the other side of the table. So from your perspective, because you've talked to VCs and been in more of these discussions than I have, if somebody's thinking of going that direction, what kind of advice would you offer? Well, first of all, there are different classes of potential investors. Just as you mentioned mattress money or family and friends, that can be useful at the very beginning. By the way, I have a hard and fast rule. I'd never invest in my own companies because the most important feature for a company's success is its ability to gather cash. If you can't get other people to invest in your company early on, you're putting money into it and keeping it alive for a longer period of time only makes it bigger and more painful when you have to shut it down. So the sooner you can kill the dogs, the better off you are. 
And that allows you to go on to the next startup that's going to be a success. But having said that, the people that are best to invest in companies are people that desperately need your product. Strategic investors, whether they're large corporations that have security problems and see your solution as something that helps them, those are people who are classically called dumb money. Now, people think that's dumb as in stupid. That's not true. It's dumb as in does not speak. That is, they will give you the money and want you to pursue your vision. And by and large, they do not have a requirement that you pay back the money as quickly as a VC would. Remember, a VC wants five times their money in three years, 10 times their money in four, four years. And they have to have cash at some point to pay back the fund. So you can't invest and say, we're never going to be publicly traded or acquired because we're going to kick off huge dividends. That's unacceptable to a venture fund, but it's just fine for a strategic investor. So if you can find a customer who would gladly want you to succeed, they will write you a check and help you to get going. And they are the type of people who will give you the feedback that you need. Because remember, no plan ever survives contact with the enemy. And no startup ever actually produces the plan that they, they planned on making before. You have to meet the evolution of the market at some point. And that means you have to add and take away features. Also, you're envisioning some grand product. That's not the product you want to deliver. You want to deliver the smallest po possible product that has the most value to the customer that you can get on the market most quickly and most easily adopted. Talking to lead-in users, people who are willing to make investments, are the, those are the people that you want to get the information from who will tell you which features that you need to prioritize and perhaps which features you need to reconsider and add. Uh, I've seen people say, no, that feature is a stupid feature. We don't want that feature. Well, the customer wants that feature and the customer needs that feature. And maybe you need to sit down with the customer and find out why that seemingly stupid feature to you is so important. Maybe you can talk them into doing things a different way, but my experience is it's better if the customer wants a green suit to turn on the green light. I recall reading a book by Eric Reese on the lean startup where he talks about what you alluded to, the minimum viable product, which then the same advice came from my brother-in-law because he did a startup when I was doing mine. And he said, Mark, if you're proud of your first release, you waited too long. And as a product developer, as an innovator, we come up with these great ideas and we're thinking, well, I don't want to put out a half-baked idea. I want to come out looking like it's perfect. And you think somehow you're going to be a runway model and every, everything is going to be in its perfect location. Your version 1.0 will last for five years because there's obviously no bugs in it and there's no feature that could possibly be missing. And that is, of course, a recipe for disaster. Rather, what you'd want to do then is to say, what is the biggest pain point that my potential customer base is facing? And then let's go address that. You could add additional capabilities as you go forward, but what you've shown is a couple things. The market can validate your business idea by actually providing you with a purchase order and nothing validates an idea 
like a check that clears the bank. And there's a lot of other things and people root for you and they'll promise you, but when that check clears the bank, you now know that, hey, I'm onto something. But in the early phases, and now I'm going back to crossing the chasm, you'll find that in your first phase, the innovators, that Bob, I want X. Well, Joe, I want Y. And Tom, I want Z. And I really need all three cells. So I'll build an X and I'll build an X and a Y and then an X and a Y and a Z. But at some point in time, I've got to put a fork in it and say, okay, no more. I cannot keep customizing my new idea for each new customer who's saying, I've got a check, but can you jump through this hoop and give me a, a ZZW? You have to say, no, we have X and Y and Z, and this is what we do. Now, maybe ZZW will be in version two or three or four. But that discipline of being able to go ahead and say, stop, stop customizing for every customer. You have to do it. But the value of that is you're actually listening to what the customers want, saying we need that. So how do we know that what a customer is asking for is if you will, worthwhile beyond just getting that one customer to sign, that they're really onto something that, wow, that's a great capability. And if we add that value to our product or service, a lot of people are going to want it as compared to, well, I, I just made her happy and she her, her company as a client is fine. But you know what? Nobody else needs what she needs. Uh, how, how do we reconcile that and avoid investing into things that basically become one-offs? Well, one of my rules is that you can sell seven of anything. I had a client one time that sold one of their million dollar products and the next quarter they sold six of them and they were cash flow positive and they were quite comfortable to plot out their IPO and they never sold another unit because the world market for it was seven units. And it's funny, I've ne I have seen a number of companies dying at seven. Seems to be a magic number, kind of like with rock stars at the age of 27. But anyway, to answer your question, I have to back up and say something. And that is, who is in charge in a company? It's very important to know who's in charge in a company. If you have an accountant in charge of the company, then you will know exactly how much everything costs, but the value of nothing. But you will have complete and utter control of the finances. If you have an engineer in charge, you'll have a factory that can produce an infinite number of units at zero cost, but has no ability to customize anything. But it's perfectly optimized. If you have a lawyer in charge, well, then you're going to have contracts everywhere and everything's going to be tied up. If you have a salesperson in charge, then the company will spend its entire time chasing the last person that said no and modifying the product for it. The answer is that in a startup, you have to have marketing drive. And marketing takes two forms. One is the chief technical officer who contains the mental proxy for the customer at the time of delivery and their needs. This is leading the market. You're going to deliver a product in 12 months, well, this person has to have a vision in their head of what that customer is going to want and need and is going to have to be willing to defend it and fight for that customer. And the CTO has to interface with marketing and technical people to make sure that everything is rationalized against that vision. 
The other alternative is the marketing arm of the company. And you have to have marketing. You can't say, well, this is a little startup. We can't have marketing. Because you need to know what the competitors are doing. You need to know what the customers want. You need to know the market, the, to, how to price the product, etc. Remember that marketing's job is to pre-qualify customers. And the thing that you need in a startup is not a qualified lead. But you need a highly qualified lead. A qualified lead is someone who has motive, means, and opportunity to buy from you. But a highly qualified lead has motive, means, opportunity, and no alternative. They have to buy from you. Those are the only people that you'll be able to close early on before you have a corporate uh, reputation and a track record and lots of reference customers. So to roll back to your question of what do you add and when do you know how to add it, that's a question of whether the company's got its head on straight. If you have the proper people seeing a common vision that's articulated through marketing and are the CTO, then you'll have no problem because you'll be able to say, this person wants this new feature. How important is this new feature? Well, we think it might be great to put in a 1.7 or 1.8, but we can't put it in today. And we don't think that this would result in major sales. Or someone comes back and says, you know, we made a big mistake in not having that feature in there. And it's desperately important. Maybe we need to go back and rethink. And if that's the case, you may have to even go so far as to go back to your investors and say, we need to retrench. Those are all important things, but you certainly shouldn't panic. And by the way, you should never be caught hugely by surprise. If you are, you have not done your marketing right. Because remember, you are not competing in a startup with large companies. And they are certainly never going to compete with you. You're competing with other startups who have the ability to adapt and turn quickly. You will not show up on your large competitors' radar scopes until you've stolen millions of revenue from them, at which point in time they will not have the time to develop a product to compete with you. They'll just simply FUD against you, sell you selling against you with fear, uncertainty, and doubt, saying, oh, you want to buy from Whamco? Well, the last person I know that bought from Whamco was fired. No one's ever fired from buying from Big Co. And that actually works in a lot of places. But you have to pay attention to the features. When you have a good lead customer set and you go over the plan of the product with them and you give them early access to alpha and beta products and let them understand how it's going to work, they will give you the feedback that you need without having surprises. But there is one last proviso here, and that is not all early adopters end up going with the major market. Sometimes you get someone who's heading in a different direction, and it's possible that you can follow them, and they will lead you to not making an automobile from a horseless carriage, but making a bulldozer. And if you were trying to make a car and you end up making a bulldozer because that's what the customer led you to, well, then you, you're in the wrong business and you'll probably not succeed. And again, I was mentioning Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm, where he talks about the difference between your very early innovators and your early adopters and early majority, late majority and laggards. And we're, we're familiar with that. 
And for those who are not familiar with the book, the idea is, is that these early customers, these early adopters, people who will say, hey, we'll, we'll buy your product, we'll give it a try. They don't represent viable reference customers to the early adopters or the early majority, I'm sorry, because they're going to look and say, hey, we're big bank. Uh, where are the other big banks that are using our product? You just sold to a little bank. We don't care what little banks do. They don't, they're little for a reason. We're big because, well, we're better. And so as a result, what is recommended in that book is you create a beachhead. You go after one key early adopter, and play that, I keep saying that, early majority, because that's probably because they've never crossed that chasm effectively, customer, and you put all your effort into it. It's like a Normandy landing. And when you get Big Co. 1 is your customer, you can then go to Big Co. 2 and say, do you realize Big Co. 1 is using this? And you could have the same advantages that they have if you use it. Oh, well, they are. Well, then maybe we should. And there's a lot of herd mentality that takes place on there. You had mentioned about the importance of marketing, and I wanted to address that a little bit. When I did my MBA, it turned out that one of my professors, a marketing professor, who had started her class by saying, to the students, what's the purpose of a business? Like, to make money, uh, to make a profit, to do the, and she's like, no, 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 no. And, and finally, after a bunch of these, what we thought were obvious, but wrong answers, she said, the purpose of a business is to attract and retain customers. That's why you organize a business for that purpose. And then she said, what's the purpose of marketing? Oh, it's to provide for sales, it's to describe your product and on and on. And after all these wrong answers come out, he says, the purpose of marketing is differentiation. What you have to do is show the market why you are not a commodity. Your pile of potassium is not going to be better than somebody else's potassium, with apologies to Borat. Rather, you're going to have to be able to define somehow what makes you unique in the marketplace, the differentiation. And from there is going to drive things such as the advertising, the sales efforts. How do you go ahead and present yourself in the market? What approach are we using? We had a forum yesterday on startups and one of the serial entrepreneurs was talking about some of her companies and she said she was doing great until she put a salesperson in charge of the marketing. And the salesperson in charge of marketing it didn't work. Now, why would a salesperson in charge of marketing not work? What are your thoughts on what could possibly go wrong with that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, when you have a salesperson in charge of a company, they can't ever take no from a customer. And as a result, they will tend to bend the company around whatever reason they were told no for the last sale. And you'll spend the rest of your time being whipsawed, adding and subtracting and modifying features on an emergency basis just to get one customer. The one thing you do not ever want in a startup is to end up with one customer with one product and have each product for each customer custom, I guess, unless you're Rolls Royce, but they can charge enough money, they can get away with it. Your point about dealing with the customers and establishing value is very important. People don't pay for things or buy things because they need them. They buy them because they want them and they tell themselves that they need them. And they will tell themselves which way is the best to do things 
and they'll choose. Your job through marketing is to establish that your product has the greater value. Remember, in an exchange of money for goods, both people are supposed to benefit. If I sell you a $10 item, you are happier to give me your $10 and I am happier to get your $10 than to own the item. So I give it to you and we both walk away having been happier by the result. That is the thing that marketing has to shepherd through. This is almost like a marriage in the sense that you actually have to have both parties walk away with a smile. And if you don't have both parties walk away with a smile, then you will not have repeat business and you will not have a good reputation. And that will ultimately cause your company to fail. The most valuable thing you can have is a customer that walks away and thinks they've swindled you because they've just received a million dollars worth of value for a hundred dollars worth of cash. And the best startups are the startups that can do that but still have enough margin to be able to, to grow and succeed. In the early days of microcomputers, there were a number of companies that were formed by engineers that had no concept of the business model required, and they produced some beautiful little computers, but they did so at such a small markup that the companies ultimately failed because the markup couldn't cover the overhead of the company. But people love their products. And as the companies were going out of business, people would be banging on the door trying to buy them as they were going, do you have one more? Just one more. My brother-in-law wants one. Well, that's not the situation you want. You want the situation where you're getting a fair price and giving an unfairly large amount of value. And that means you have to understand what value is in the eyes of your customer. And that brings us back to the proper lead end users, the proper marketing, the proper discussion with customers. And it means that you have to make sure that you meet the needs of the customers. By the way, there's one other rule, and that is there's no such thing as a 2.0. Whatever product you ship, you'll continue to modify that product and improve upon that product. But they're only in myth is there the idea of we'll get big and make a lot of money and then we'll start over and we'll do it right. You're always going to have to improve the base product that you have because there will never be that opportunity where you can simply walk away from an ongoing business and start over. I will remind you that Henry Ford tried to do that with the Model A and he did so after selling millions of Model T's and during the time he was shut down, Ford ceased to be the number one car in the world, and Ford never became the leader again, or at least hasn't in the ensuing century. And that's some sober advice there to think about you know, what is it that works, what cannot work. So let's, let's try to start pulling some of this stuff together here. Individual, hopefully maybe one of our listeners here, says, hey, I got a great idea. Well, my observation has been, there's no such thing as a million dollar idea. There's only a million dollar action because you'll be watching TV some evening and something can come on on an ad and they'll go, look at this, it's amazing. It slices, it dices, it makes julian fries. And on and on. And you can say, you know, there, there's my radio voice. And he's like, I thought of that five years ago. And I look at my buddy and I'll say, I believe you, but this person spent 
four of the last five years in their garage eating macaroni and cheese, actually building a prototype and debugging it and working it out and hitting the streets and marketing it. And that's why they're there. So just because you think of it doesn't get you anywhere. And so don't, don't go there necessarily. If you want to turn it into reality, part of the difficulty then is to say, well, it, it almost doesn't take a village to raise a company, but it usually takes a team. It's really tough when you're independent. I did a startup back in 2014. I had three other guys that were going to go in on it with me. But when push came to shove and said, let's go, I was the only one willing to jump off the bridge. And nobody else wanted to let go of the, the rope and hold on to their safety and their regular biweekly paycheck. And so trying to do it all yourself, in my retrospective opinion, is a bad idea. And the reason being is you can't do it all. And if you try to do it all, you're going to do it some of it poorly because there's just not enough bandwidth. And it's unlikely that you're going to be a master of all the different skill sets that are required. And therefore, it's a matter of self-evaluation to say, I may be really great at visioning what the future might require. And this type of product or service is going to add a huge amount of value. But I have no idea how to go ahead and differentiate from the market. I have no idea how to sell this thing. I have no idea how to do the treasury management. I have no idea how to do the legal contracts and so on. And we find out that at some point in time, all these great ideas that turn into a product that turn into a business are going to require a lot of infrastructure. And that infrastructure is not necessarily physical infrastructure. It's the logical infrastructure of the business functions, which brings me to what I has always found to be sort of a perplexing question is if you're a sole founder or even with a team, you got a couple of people, great. And you're going along and you're working and you've, you've made a commitment. And by the way, don't do this on the side. If you ever watch Shark Tank, one of the things they find out is, well, well what are you doing? If the guy says, well, I'm still working my daytime job and uh, I'm doing this on the weekends, Mr. Wonderful thinks that's not so wonderful. But if the person says, I'm all in, I'm going to sink or swim with this thing, then as an investor, I feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that you're going to keep persisting with the inevitable difficult times. My money is not going to be walked away from when you say, oh, this looks hard. I don't want to do hard. You're going to say, I don't want to lose my house. Now, I'm not recommending mortgage your house to start your company. And I, I remember that you know, when I did that startup, the uh, executive director said, G Mark, don't, don't sell your house. Don't go all the way in. He said, there are people who can afford to lose money. Assume that your startup, not that you want to, but assume personally that your startup is going to fail. You're going to represent to everybody else your startup is going to be the one in 10 that wildly succeeds. But if you go in there with the expectation that this ain't going to work, but then you persist anyway, sort of the Stockdale paradox, then what happens is a couple things occur. Number one is, is you create opportunities for other investors to get in there. And yes, you have to give up equity. And the sooner you let them in and the less you can negotiate, the more you give up. And pretty much you find out that sometimes you get voted off your own island. I just asked Marcus Ranum about how that went. And so you want to consider holding on as long as you can, if you will, to control of your business. But the money that you bring in is going to give you a couple of things. It gives you the revenue to go ahead and either hire people or create facilities if you're going to manufacture something. It also provides you with speed to market. If you are going to try to grow organically out of your own financial resources, you might get there in five to seven years. But somebody else with a VC backing might start in two and a half years and then be there eight to 12 months later and you just got smoked. 
And so as a result, speed to market becomes an imperative and that driver has to keep you going every day. I can't take a nice leisurely weekend. I'm not going to take two weeks of vacation. Even if it's not paid time off, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't care about that. No, you need to keep going and going and going because you have to assume that there's a, a shark going to be nipping at your heels very quickly and you can't see it yet. But what you saw in the market in an opportunity, let's be realistic. There's 8 billion other humans plus or minus out there. And the odds of you statistically being the only person to perceive this is quite low. The difference is execution and the ability to move from an idea to a product or a service to delivery to then the feedback loop, which goes, creates that marketing presence, which allows the world to see that you're different, that then allows them to go ahead and, and off we go. So that's a big, long preamble. But one of the most difficult questions that I have found, let me leave you with this is perhaps our last question is, whom do you hire first and when do you choose to do that hiring? When do you know is a startup person when it's right to actually bring somebody in there and write a paycheck rather than be the fellow co-founder that's in the garage? Well, that is the $10,000 question. And people that get it wrong don't end up writing that check for very long because they tend to fail. The key, most important idea here is that you do not fund an individual, but you fund a team. And that's because of the many hats that need to be worn. Yes, you're right. You need to have someone who can function as a CEO, who can raise money. In Silicon Valley, the average CEO spends 48% of their time raising money, 47% of their time coping with the board and the board's demands, and about 3% of the time running the company which means that the rest of the team more or less has to be self-running. Or you have to have a chief operating officer underneath the CEO who really is doing most of what you would think of as the CEO functions. But you have to have finance. And today, there are so many regulations and taxes and forms to fill out that you can hire a CPA firm, but you are going to need to have expertise within the company to do that and to administer the healthcare requirements, and the other things of your employees. We have made it very difficult for you to have a three-person company at this point in time without major external sources of expertise and knowledge. And then, of course, you have to have the people developing the product and the people selling the product. And I will tell you that you don't want developers selling product. You don't want salespeople developing the product. That's just the wrong mix. So when you go to form the company, you'll end up with more hats than you have people. And that's the way it works. And so you need utility infielders, as it were, people who can cover more than one base. But very quickly, you have to realize that those people are being overwhelmed. And as that happens, they need to be backstopped with other people. And you need to have people who have enough of a lack of ego to be able to say, I'm getting behind, this is getting too big, I've got too much to do, I need some help. And that's when you spend the money. Remember, no one looks forward to enlarging the, the payroll because when you enlarge payroll, overhead goes up, you need more space, it brings about more headaches and everything else. In a startup, you only hire people because you have to 
Because remember, you want to take a paycheck home. And if you end up paying all the money to your employees and there's no money for you to take home, well, you know, sorry, don't feed the bulldog. So to answer your question, you have to be careful and look at the growth of the company and the plan and when you're going to need people. Remember Brooks's law. It takes nine months to make a baby independent of the number of women given the job. Otherwise known as adding people to a late project makes it later. That's not a good use of, of resources. On the other hand, if you're going to be marketing a product in six months and you're going to be selling it, you don't hire the sales and marketing people two days before you sell. You have to bring them on and let them climb the learning curve. So this is where you have to sit down and do the homework. And this is where a good board of directors can help you. You want, by the way, to have at least one independent member of the board. That is someone who isn't working for the company and who has an independent life, who has a business experience, who can sit back and mentor you. Finally, remember that if you are not the person to be the CEO in the startup, the first thing you do is you find a CEO and help the CEO to pull together the team and move it forward. Many of the most successful startups were, are begun by technical people who have technical ideas who realize that they are not the person to run the company. I will finally say that the best CEOs in startups are almost never the best CEOs as the companies mature. If you think about the high visibility startups from Silicon Valley, almost none of them have the same CEO as they had during their high growth phase. And sometimes they've gone through two or three generations of CEOs. And that is not because something went wrong with those CEOs. It was that the demands on those positions were different. And such is true for all of these positions. An engineer who's a good individual contributor may be able to crank out product very quickly, but may not at all be capable of running a 20 or 30 person engineering group. And as a result, you need to be prepared to handle these problems, but they're high quality problems. If you have a 20 person engineering group or a 40 person marketing group, odds are you're doing pretty good. Well, Bob, thank you for those words of wisdom. It's interesting looking at all of this and we could keep going on, but the thing is, is that this gets people hopefully thinking about some of the aspects of a decision-making process. Uh, if you look before you leap is what they say, and we've tried to give you things to look out for. But at the same time in life, what I've observed is that if you do decide to do a startup and it doesn't succeed, no one's going to condemn you and say you're unsuitable for work for the rest of your life. You say, what happened during this period of your resume where there's a blank? What well, is a company? I was a startup. I did it, but it didn't work out. And that's why I'm coming back to work for Big Co. Okay, fine. That's part of what you almost expect in this line of work. So don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of failure. One of the biggest difficulties in life is we seem to want to think we accumulate a perfect record. And in doing so, we avoid all risk. And therefore, you miss out on the opportunities that come with those risks. So I've been a small business guy, I've been a startup guy several times, hit some singles, never hit anything out of the park, but you still want to come back up at bat. You don't want to sit down in the bleachers, grab a hot dog and watch somebody else play. You can if you like, but I encourage you if you're thinking about doing something like this, 
to give it some deep consideration, get some wise advice and some wisdom from others, and take the leap because you won't get old wondering what could have happened had I tried it. You'd have known. If it didn't work out, life goes on. But if it did, it could change everything for you. So thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Bob Cousins. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy. As always, we ask you to follow us on LinkedIn because you can get more information than just the shows. We try to keep useful information coming to you throughout the week. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast channel and you haven't already done so, please give us some feedback, hopefully a five, which helps us in our ratings reach other people as well. And then you're helping other people in your community. Until next time, thank you here from CISO Tradecraft and stay safe out there.